Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Over the course of 13 hours in April 2020, a gunman dressed as an RCMP officer killed 22 people in rural Nova Scotia. It was Canada's worst mass shooting. He went on a rampage, you know, heavily armed with assault rifles. That's The Globe's Greg Mercer speaking to us in February. He killed 22 people, including a, an expectant mother. It, he hit the road in his, his fake police cruiser and he went across a big swath of the county surrounding Truro and, and covered a lot of ground going to rural places, actually going to people's homes out in the country and mm-hmm. killing them. He killed people on the side of the road who were out walking their dog. He killed people who were on their way to work on the Sunday morning. When we last spoke to Greg, the public inquiry into how police responded to the mass shooting had just begun. And it's not cheap. It's cost about $13 million to date. They've been at it for about 16 months already. But as the inquiry went on and people learned more about what happened, we were left with even more questions about why the RCMP took so long to stop the shooter. By midnight on April 18th, police knew that he was driving a police cruiser. They had information that was reliable. He was dressed as a Mountie, and they they should have known that he had escaped the perimeter that they'd set up around his cottage in Porta Peak. They withheld that information for about 10 hours until the following morning on Sunday, they finally alerted the public that they were on the hunt for this guy, but they only did it on Twitter. Why wasn't the public notified that a shooter was on the loose? Why wasn't an emergency alert issued? And when people called 911, why weren't they taken more seriously? We finally have answers to those questions. And the victims' families are not happy. Greg Mercer joins us again today to explain. This is The Decibel. Greg, thank you so much for joining us again. Hey, happy to be here. I want to start off today by by playing a bit of audio from the inquiry. Uh, this is Staff Sergeant Bruce Briers, and this is him recalling a key piece of evidence. I wish I, this is one of those regrets. If that had been pointed out, told me, then we could have did an all radio broadcast. members heads up because if we have any cars and I don't think we do on the road we could have pulled them off and it, and it would have made a big difference because Constable McDonald would have had a heads up when he drove onto that vehicle he saw the push bar in Wentworth and from that point forward we don't know how things could have changed because it only takes one difference I have to live with that. So, Greg, you've been watching these proceedings closely now. It sounds like from that clip that emotions are are running really high at this inquiry. Would you describe it like that? We're starting to hear some of that, certainly, from some of the senior RCMP officers who are kind of acknowledging that mistakes were made and that that, um, things were missed that could have altered the outcome of this tragedy. So, So definitely, we're hearing that now. And then also some of the decisions that they made that don't make a, a lot of sense in hindsight, that people really want more, some clear answers on. 
What kind of decisions when you say decisions that don't make a lot of sense? Like what's coming up? Uh, everything from why they did not issue an emergency alert. Uh, we had an officer who said he thought it was only for weather events. He didn't realize he could use it to alert the public when there's a, an armed uh, mass killer on the loose. Um, wow. there, yeah, there were decisions around uh, not to send a second team of officers into the community of port while the shooting was active, while there were people in there wanting the police to come in and help them. There was an officer who came in and said, no, we want to hold back. He was worried that police officers would be shooting at each other. He was worried about the crossfire rather than the, you know, the civilians who were in there scared for their lives. There was um, uh, information that came out last week in testimony from a senior RCMP commander who said he, he didn't know how to use the mapping software that the RCMP is, are supposed to be trained on that would have shown them escape routes that this killer was using to get away from the police. You know, key information that we're learning that that is mind-boggling in terms of their response. Yeah. I want to ask you about something else that's come out recently with this inquiry, Greg. This idea that the RCMP actually maybe warned people that were close to them, some family members, but not the broader public that something like this was happening. What what can you tell us about that? So the, uh, we know a little bit of that through the inquiry that, that people were, were messaging loved ones during the attack, basically saying, you know, stay home, that that there's a gunman on the loose, you know, before the public were notified. Um, through Twitter that, that this was happening. You can, you can appreciate that that has angered a lot of the families, particularly on the second day of the attack, um, where by that point, the police knew he had escaped. They knew he was on the run and they, they still were hesitant to inform the public about everything that they knew. One of the things you just mentioned there and something that's been, been coming up is that police took a really long time to alert the, the public to the fact that there was a dangerous situation happening. Do we know now exactly when the police had a clear description of the shooter? We know that within minutes of this attack beginning, they knew his name. They knew that he was driving uh, a vehicle that looked exactly like an RCMP patrol car. Uh, they had multiple people tell them this through 911 calls. You know, when he when the killer showed up in their driveway, people were still alive calling the police saying, it's my neighbor, this is his name, and he's driving a lookalike police vehicle. Mm-hmm. The RCMP didn't take it seriously. They thought that witnesses were confused. They thought the people were misunderstanding what they were seeing. And so a lot of the internal communication between the Mounties was that, no, this isn't an identical looking police car. This is a, a decommissioned Ford Taurus. We're not looking for a police car. That's a serious thing to get wrong in the middle of a manhunt when there's an active shooter. And a lot of people feel that that lives were lost because of, of those miscues, that they simply dropped the ball. Have the police said why that information about who this person was, why that wasn't shared? There's a few different explanations we've received from the police. Uh, one of them is a, a theory that they seem to seize on pretty early was that this gunman had committed suicide. So they didn't think there was uh, a risk to the public anymore. There was a senior officer who was pushing this theory that, no, we believe this guy is going to end his life and therefore there's no risk to the public. We now know that this gunman escaped the police and he went on 
to continue his attack for a second day and murdering another nine people on top of the 13 people that he killed the first night. So uh, that's a pretty significant error on the part of the police. Yeah. And so I I can imagine people have a lot of questions about the RCMP then about the way things were handled. We've now heard testimony from some of the senior RCMP officers involved in the, the police response to the shooting. Three of them have been granted special accommodation by the inquiry and, and have been spared, essentially, cross-examination from the lawyers that are representing the victims' families. Why is that? It's a, it's a pretty controversial point. There's no question. Um, so the inquiry, when it was created, they adopted a trauma-informed approach, which means we are going to put a priority on protecting people from being re-traumatized through this process. What angers people is that those accommodations have only been used so far for senior RCMP officers. Even frontline officers who were the first to respond to this attack were not given this special accommodation. And so the families of victims who lost people in this attack are saying, you are putting more emphasis on the mental health of RCMP decision makers who should be accountable over our trauma. And they're saying that's that is not what we wanted when we asked for this inquiry. And so they have boycotted. Many of them have walked out of the proceedings. They've told their lawyers not to participate. Uh, Dozens of them held protests in Truro uh, this week and last week. They're very angry. They said millions of dollars are being spent on this inquiry. We had hoped it was going to help us get to the bottom of this and ask hard questions from the people who made decisions. And they feel like uh, some of the RCMP uh, senior leaders are, are getting off easy. One of the senior commanders, uh, when this attack first happened, he called in and said, I've been drinking. I've had five drinks of rum. I'm too impaired to help out. And then an hour later, he's suddenly on the police radio directing officers in the middle of the worst mass shooting in Canadian history. Yeah, I, I think you, the person you're referencing is is uh, RCMP officer Staff Sergeant Andy O'Brien, uh, who, yeah, like you like you said, said he'd had four or five rum drinks. His wife actually had to drive him to the station to pick up his equipment. And then all of a sudden he was commanding the operation from from home. I'm, I want to play a little clip of him being questioned at this inquiry about this. Let, let's hear this. I'll just ask you directly, um, did alcohol impair your judgment in any way over the course of your response to the mass casualty? I don't feel it did, no. Okay. Okay. Uh, so uh, you've indicated... Um, I mean, that's that's pretty astonishing. Four or five drinks, all of a sudden he's commanding this operation. It doesn't sound like he's being thoroughly questioned there. What's going on here? The families are asking the same thing. How can it be that someone who inserted themselves into the police response, um, you know, only an hour earlier was telling his colleagues he wasn't able to help out because of the drinks he had? Um, You know, he made some key decisions around not sending a second team of RCP officers into uh, the community where the attack began. He got on the police radio and said, no, we're not looking for a a, a lookalike RCP patrol car. We're looking for a white Ford Taurus, which was flat out wrong. You know, he was misdirecting the Mounties in their search for this guy. He also uh, was one of the people who said, no, we should not issue an emergency alert because that is reserved for bad weather events. He made a series of terrible decisions at critical points in this attack, you know, not long after he had told his colleagues he could not help out because he'd been drinking. I know this is an inquiry to to really figure out what happened, but is anyone going to be held to account as a result of this process? So the the mandate of the inquiry is not to find blame. Uh, You know, no one will be charged criminally as a result of this. 
Um, its mandate is to is to come up with recommendations, right, for for both federal and provincial officials. Uh, I would imagine there will be policy changes and training changes that that likely will come out of this on the part of the RCMP, but um, that remains to be seen. There's no, nothing the inquiry could do to compel any organization, including the RCMP, to adopt changes as a result of this. Uh, let's play another clip. Uh, this is part of Staff Sergeant Brian Rehill's testimony from last week. Uh, he's responding to a question about internal notes from one of the first calls that, that came in. It was just a thought in the initial part because in the OCC we receive so many calls of people with mental health issues, whether they be um, in psychosis, hallucinating, um, especially elderly people with dementia. We receive calls of similar to that, like really outlandish details, and uh, the members will be dispatched and they'll Google there quite quickly, only to find out that there's nothing happening at all, mm-hmm. and that this person, I can think of a number of them that has dementia that would call us with these types of stories. Right. It sounds like he's saying that officers question the legitimacy of these reports because of the caller's mental health. Is that what happened? Absolutely. So he's referring to one of the first calls to 911 from the Blair family. This was the first home that the gunman went to and and began murdering uh, both the the mother and the father. The mother of of two boys hiding in that house called police and described the vehicle. and, And she told police who it was. And that, that clip shows that they didn't take it seriously. They felt that, no, this, is, this could be a mental health call. This is someone who's not really seeing what's happening. And that's not the only one. There were other people who described in detail the gunman's car. And, and the police thought either this was a mental health or uh, someone who had, was on drugs or they were m- mistaken about what they were seeing. And that attitude pervaded the response in the early hours of this attack. And we now know that created significant problems for the RCMP. Yeah. But it sounds like others did come forward to the RCMP ahead of time, though. Is, is that right? Definitely. Yeah. Many years before this guy committed this horrible uh, mass shooting, there were there were complaints to the police that he had threatened people. Uh, there was a there was an alert that actually went to the RCMP that he uh, said he wanted to kill a cop and that he had a stash of illegal weapons. There were, um, wow. you know, his his neighbor uh, actually contacted the police and filed a complaint and said that she saw him attacking his common-law wife on more than one occasion, um, that he, you know, something needs to be done. And what's not clear is is whether the RCMP bothered to follow up on, on, these, on, on these red flags, right? Here was a guy who... Um, you know, who was intimidating his entire community. And, and he was well known in port pic that he was well-armed, that you didn't cross him, and that he, he um, was the kind of person who had a lot of rage within him. And yet the police, despite these warnings, didn't seem to follow up on these, on these calls. Is this something we're hoping to get out of this inquiry now? Like wh- why the RCMP didn't do anything when multiple people were saying that they were worried about him? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's, I think that's a key element that people want answered, that this is not one of these cases where people are saying, we never saw this coming. Hmm. Um, and he, he clearly had been planning this for a long time. Uh, and there were a lot of warnings that went ignored. And that's, that's, that is something we need to get to the bottom of. Greg, you mentioned earlier that the victims' families are, are, you know, getting pretty frustrated with what's happening here. And you said they've instructed some of their lawyers to boycott the proceedings without that kind of representation, though, at every step of this inquiry, will they actually 
get the answers that they they're looking for? That remains to be seen. I mean, they, the inquiry is in a really bad spot right now. They have clearly lost the trust of some very key um, participants, and that, that's the families of, of victims. Um, there is a lot, of, a lot of skepticism now among many Nova Scotians that this process is going to give people the answers that they want. There's, there's a perception among some people that the inquiry is colluding with the RCMP to not really get to the bottom of, of things. And, and that is a bad look. That's terrible optics for any inquiry that, is, that needs the public to trust they are trying to get to the bottom of things. You've been following this very closely, Greg. How can they regain that trust from the victims' families? I think they could they could change their approach to to key witnesses. I think that the families have made it very clear that they want their lawyers to have the ability to cross-examine these people. They see them not exposing the RCMP to difficult cross-examination. And they're saying, well, why are you doing this? And I, I think the inquiry has not done a very good job of explaining to people why they feel that this trauma-informed approach is going to give them better testimony. So without a clear explanation from people, from the inquiry rather, people are drawing their own conclusions that the inquiry is in on it, that there's some kind of cover-up and the inquiry, even though it's an independent body, is is somehow working with the RCMP. Hmm. Let's turn to a bit of the, the bigger picture here. The federal government introduced new firearms legislation last week. Uh, the, the the bill places a freeze essentially on, on handguns and plans for uh, a mandatory assault rifle buyback program. Do you think that the Nova Scotia shooting had any influence in this in this government decision? I think it certainly uh, added fuel to the conversation around guns in this country and gun violence. But none of the weapons used by the the gunman were were, were legal firearms that he had a license to use, right? They, uh, four of the five weapons that he used were smuggled into Canada illegally uh, from the U.S., right? I mean, those are not those are not things that that firearms led regulation are going to change, right? That's an issue of cross border smuggling. Mm. That's an interesting point, though, that that these weapons that were used were smuggled in from the U.S. because we know that a lot of Firearms linked to crimes in Canada are smuggled over the border. Uh, Toronto sees this as a, as a huge problem because the, the Toronto police reported that 66% of guns linked to crimes in 2016 came illegally from the U.S. And that actually increased to 85% by 2021. So we're talking a massive number here. What have we learned about specifically the weapons that were used in the port peak shooting? What do we know about how the gunmen got those weapons across the border? So we know that he had he had a friend in Maine and in Holton, Maine, who who helped him uh, get weapons. In in some cases, uh, the story is that he took the guns without permission and smuggled them in his truck across the border back into New Brunswick and drove to Nova Scotia. Uh, in one case, he went to a gun show in Maine and and had uh, an American buy a gun on his behalf. You know, all of these things are breaking the rules. You're not allowed to do this. Uh, but he had quite a collection of weapons. Um, and ammunition in the eyes of the law, which he had no right to have. Hmm. I want to ask you about the the police as as well, because obviously the RCMP has been questioned now in, in this inquiry. And we are seeing um, a bit more of a spotlight on police behavior. So from the protests in, in Ottawa earlier this year, even the school shooting in, in Uvalde, Texas, uh, it seems like we are really having a, a, a moment of re-examining the way the police respond to these emergencies. So based on what you can tell, Greg, how has this inquiry affected the way that that Nova Scotians feel about the police? 
I think particularly in rural areas, it, the RCMP have really been hurt by this, uh, by this mass shooting. Um, I think that people feel that, you know, when there is a mass shooting, they expect the police to do everything they can to protect them. And there's a lot of evidence that time and time again, they, they, they dropped the ball in, in, in Nova Scotia two years ago. Um, I don't know how they recover from that, but there are communities now in Nova Scotia and other parts of Atlantic Canada that are openly saying, maybe we don't want the RCMP to protect us anymore. Maybe we ought to have a, a different municipal police force protecting us. Um, that's the conversation now. And I think that wouldn't have happened without this mass shooting. So it sounds like one of the, the big things that's really emerged from this inquiry is, is really just how unprepared the RCMP was in a situation of this extent. Considering what we've learned through this this process so far, what would be different if, if something like this were to happen again? I think there's a few things. I think most definitely police would have been it would be more uh, quick to use the emergency alert system. That's the ready alert system that, that sends a message to people's phones. I think there would likely be more clarity around communication, right? And who's in charge? That's something that's been exposed by this. Um, and I also think that, well, at least people hope that there would be more cooperation with other police services. You know, the Truro Police Force, a municipal force, was a few minutes away from where this attack began. At no point were they asked by the RCMP to help. And in fact, when they offered to help during the manhunt, the RCMP said, no, we've got this under control. And the attitude is almost you know, we're the national force. We know what we're doing. We'll let you know when we need your help. And that attitude has to change. What can we expect to hear here next from this inquiry now? We still have a few months of, of evidence and reports and testimony. I think people are, are waiting to hear from the gunman's common law wife. She's a key figure in this, in this whole story. She's never uh, spoken publicly about what she knew, uh, about things she saw in the lead up to this, because there was a significant amount of preparation on the part of the gunman. You know, and I think families of victims want to hear from her. You know, why, why did this not raise red flags with her? Why did she not go to the police? You know, what was he telling her even on the day where he seemed to be tracing the route? You know, the day before the attack, he, he appeared to get in his car and trace the route that he would eventually take. Um, people want to hear from her because she was at the center of this thing. And she's, you know, one of the few living people around who can speak to this. Greg, thank you so much for, for following this and for speaking with me today. My pleasure. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Allie Graham helped produce this episode. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovic is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.